disruptors have assembled. Welcome, gang. We got a great weekend. Who's that? Benoit Blanc, the detective? Mr. Prompt. I cannot overstate my gratitude to be here. When's the murder mystery start? I've invited you all to my island. Hi. Because tonight, a murder will be committed. My murder. Once you're dead, will we still be able to talk to you? Yeah, I'm not playing dead the whole weekend, dude. Well, this is truly delightful. Across the island, I've hidden clues. You will have to closely observe each other. If anyone can name the killer, that person wins our game. Any questions? <laughs> Allie Berry. That has a kick. Oh my God, what happened? Ladies and gentlemen, there's been a murder, and the killer is in plain sight. For at least one person, this is not a game. I must insist that nobody touch the body. Jeez, detective, who killed the party? I need to find a motive for murder. Everyone would stab a friend in the back to hold on to this rich bastard. Ooh, 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 killed it. They're all friends. Why would anyone commit murder? Are we even going to talk about the elephant in the room? Am I the elephant? Yeah, you're the elephant. You're not that bad. I got a danger here. Are you calling me dangerous? Well, we'll see. Reckless. The killer wouldn't hesitate to kill again if it covers their tracks. You must be really great at Clue, huh? I'm very bad at dumb things. Ticking boxes, running around, searching all the rooms. It's just a terrible, terrible game. And welcome to this special mini episode on Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. But apparently Ryan Johnson really is mad about that. So we're going to just say Glass Onion, which is what it should be anyway. I'm Karen Peterson, joined by Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Brooks. Hello. Brooks. Are hard today. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about a good, an interesting movie. <laughs> <laughs> we sure are. Um, so we are so glad that you're joining us today. This is this is officially going to be our last episode of 2022. Um, we decided to just do one more for funsies. And um, so here we are. So um, we are going to talk about this movie as if everyone listening has seen it. Yeah. And um, which means we are going to spoil everything. So if you have not watched Glass Onion yet, stop right now. Go to Netflix watch it and then come back because you're going to want to enjoy this without the spoilers. Um, and uh, yeah. So um, all right. This is a, I'm going to say it's not a sequel to Knives Out. I personally think it's just another Benoit Blanc mystery. Um, yeah. It's really, there's no tie. You can watch this one without having seen Knives Out at all. You don't have to know anything about Knives Out. You don't have to know Knives Out exists um, to enjoy this one. So, um, yeah. 
why don't we start with um, Lauren? What were your basic general impressions going into the movie and, and um, your kind of just, just basic thoughts about it? Well, I, so I went into this very, very much looking forward to it. We finally, my family actually finished watching it last night because we watched part of it the night before and I was falling asleep and my parents were falling asleep because oh, no, we're yeah, tired. Yeah, you can't fall asleep watching this movie. <laughs> and, and we're finally like, okay, we can't, we need to, we need to, to pause here and then come back. And it was interesting because we actually paused kind of right before the film kind of takes a turn. And, and it was, it was interesting because my mother and I were talking about it the next day. So we were about, about an hour in, it's right when, um, what's his name get, it gets killed. Uh, sorry, who? Duke. Duke. Yes. So we, we stopped like right after that, basically. Um, and, and, and we, so my mom and I were having this conversation about it the next day we, and we were both like, okay, well this has to take a turn, right? It has to, because otherwise it's way too obvious what's going to happen. Um, and, and I was like, well, you know, Knives Out, it seemed, it was similar in the sense that it was like, okay, we kind of know where this is going and then it does take a turn. Um, and, and luckily I was, I was like, I'm going to trust Ryan Johnson that he knows what he's doing on this one because he's done this before. And, you know, I really hope that this is going to go in the right direction. And it definitely did. Uh, because then we get the, uh, the whole like actual backstory, the other half of the story as it were and uh, develops, you know, the, the, um, the Janelle Monae character, characters, I guess, uh, and, and everything that is actually kind of going on that is, is hinted at throughout the first hour, but you're, you're kind of like, I've, something else is happening that we're not, and we're, we're not seeing the entire story here yet. Um, and I really like the way that, that this is, I, I like the way that this film is constructed because it does use all of those, uh, you know, whodunit tropes in a similar way to, to the, the way that Knives Out uses them and then actually does something interesting with them, it uses those tropes and kind of goes in a different direction with them and actually makes a commentary about wealth, about race, about power, uh, about intelligence um, and, and kind of goes in an interesting direction while at the same time kind of maintaining this sense of surprise and twistiness. Uh, this one, I said to you last night, Karen, that I thought it was a really good movie that is not a good mystery. And I think that that holds true in the sense that even more so than Knives Out, this is not really a mystery. There's not that much there's a little bit of like, well, what could have happened kind of thing, but it's pretty obvious almost from the start who the villain of the piece is. Uh, and and even though it's not 100% obvious where that's going to go, uh, it's, it becomes more obvious, particularly about, about an hour and a half into the film. Um, and so it, it was an odd experience because I was sitting there going like, well, as a whodunit, this isn't great. But as a film, as like a film and a comedy and a commentary and like doing some really interesting things with the whodunit um, structure, it's very good. So I, I'm kind of in a weird space on this where I'm like, I really liked this, but also it's not a good whodunit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because um, I've been thinking a lot about this. I've, I've, I saw the movie um, twice before it hit Netflix. I got to see it at Middleburg. Um, in October and then I got to see it um, at the premiere and then now I've watched it again on Netflix. This is a movie that rewards rewatching. 
um, in a very surprising way because it is a murder mystery. And once you like, that's, that's what it's, you know, what it's billed as. And um, it's interesting because some movies, once you know the the case, once you know what really happened, it's like rewatching it can be fun, but it's not that surprising, but I don't know. There's something about glass onion that really does, it it's it is a it's an onion. The movie is an onion where the more you peel back the layers, the more there is to uncover. It's it's really fascinating the way that he's constructed this. But but in terms of the mystery itself, I think you're absolutely right. I think that because we look at murder mysteries and who done it, like that whole genre, we look at them as usually they're they're movies where if you're paying attention, you can you can try to solve the case yourself. But with this, because there is the entire first half of the movie is a misdirect. And we can talk about some of the very specific ways that we are given something that turns out to not be correct at all. Um, but so we, we can't like, you can guess certain things, but you really can't like solve the crime. Yeah. Um, along with Benoit Blanc. So it's it's really yep. interesting. And what I was thinking about was that it's actually a lot like the puzzle box in the beginning of the movie. So because, you know, it opens with this invitation that's this this crazy puzzle box with all these games, which I love later when Blanc is like these children's games that took <laughs> the rest of them like a really long time to solve and were really complicated. Um, but what's funny is so that puzzle box, they didn't literally build it's not it's not something that actually exists some of the some of the pieces to it exist the actors are able to interact with it and stuff but that is is um boosted with visual effects and so i was thinking about how that puzzle box that entire opening sequence is actually a really a really good representation of what the movie is because it's not something that you can just solve because it it's not set up that way. Um, the The story itself is a mystery, but it's one that um, is it's trying to accomplish something else. It's not just supposed to be a fun game for us to mm -hmm. watch and and try to puzzle out. It's it's doing something deeper, and so that's where it's like there is some visual effects, some sleight of hand happening where it keeps us from being able to actually solve it. Like I said, we can guess it. Like, as soon as I saw Edward Norton was in the cast, I said, he's either the victim or the murderer. Yeah, well, and, and the entire setup, you know, the, this whole idea about this rich million, this, this, you know, billionaire who brings all of these people to his island, they all hate him, right? Right. And for different reasons, they all have a motive for killing him. It's, it is that very classic whodunit setup. In fact, um, one of the first things that, that you know, came to mind immediately was just like, okay, so Last of Sheila, which yeah, is... Yeah, which was a huge reference for this one. Yeah, so Last of Sheila and and uh, and then there were none. The the um, the Agatha Christie novel, which literally takes place on an isolated island. <laughs> which um, I and, and And it's a fantastic book and everything, but it, it is one of those where it's basically everybody gets together on an island, gets trapped on the island, and murders begin happening and so it's about who's the murderer who has and you're uncovering all of the motives and all of that stuff um but so so yeah and and in fact agatha christie's mysteries which are very like the knives out both films oh yeah heavily refer to those right um they've often been described as puzzle boxes they're they're things that like 
look basic on the outside and then become more and more complicated the more you deconstruct them, right? Um, and and but everything kind of fits together. And but very often, even you know, when we're talking about, uh, I think that Agatha Christie sometimes doesn't get credit in the sense that. There are a lot of Agatha Christie stories that you can't actually solve because what happens is the detective discovers something like, by the way, this character has a twin sister. Right. <laughs> by the way, this character has is the son of this other character. Right. That kind of thing where it's a piece of information that the detective eventually gains. Right. But. Uh, the reader doesn't doesn't have until nearing the end. And that's what ultimately winds up solving the mystery. And so I really liked that when they introduced the twin sister element, just like, of course, someone has a twin sister. <laughs> We've been missing like that didn't happen in Knives Out. So obviously we have to get the twin. Mm -hmm. um, and that immediately complicates things because uh, because then you're questioning like, OK, what are we actually seeing? What does this actually mean? Um, one of the things I really liked about uh, in reference to like the the kind of the puzzle box thing and this whole idea of, of like, again, that turn in the middle of the in the middle of the film where we get the backstory. Right. Yeah. Um, is is how throughout the first hour of the film, like you get Blanc in particular, but everybody just constantly saying it's all about the way that you look at it. It's all about your perspective. It's all about what you see. Right. And that should clue the viewer into everything that we're seeing is filtered through a particular perspective, a perspective of the whodunit mm -hmm. and also perspective of the characters. So almost immediately, I think one of the reasons why I was like, okay, there has to be a turn because otherwise this is too obvious. Um, there were moments like, so the moment when um, they switch glasses, when Miles and Duke switch glasses. And mm -hmm. at that moment, I was just, I was sitting there going like, he just gave him his glass. So you saw that happen. I saw it immediately. Yeah, immediately. Okay, and, interesting. And one of one of the reasons I and, and then it gets repeated, right? Only told in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. Because and then we're being told, well, actually, what we're seeing wasn't what we saw. But I was like, no, I definitely saw. It. He definitely gave him his glass. That's what I saw. <laughs> um, but it it does it does feed into that. Okay, we you know what are we actually seeing and from whose perspective are we seeing it and what does that mean? So the whole like we're going to solve uh, right before we get to the flashback who killed Cassandra Bland and Brand and of course we're like oh of course you know because she just died she's like no she was dead before any of this started. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, but it is it's about that perspective and. Um, what you are actually seeing and what you are actually hearing and also what the viewer is inferring based upon the the genre that we're looking at the what we already know about the first knives out film all of those things and so we're making assumptions that sometimes become red herrings and sometimes don't right well there's so many so many smart and simple ways that he does that um especially in that first half before you find out about helen and andy being twins or even that Helen exists um so like for instance when Benoit is kind of running around the island and, and following people around and he's following Duke and he sees Duke see his girlfriend sleeping with Miles and we see um what looks like Duke stumbling on this and seeing it and getting really upset about what's happening because his girlfriend is cheating on him but then later once we know more about the story, what we really find out is that Duke asked Whiskey 
to go into and do that because he's using her mm-hmm. to try to further his career. He wants a job in this new net new news network that Miles is about to launch. And so it's like all these things where we're only seeing part of the story. Um so that's where it's yeah. like it's really not guessable, but it's it just adds all this interesting layers and tension. And and we're making assumptions also. Right. So we've mm-hmm. seen this portion of the story. And so we make an assumption that this is why he's behaving in this way. Right. Um, and it's the same thing with, with Miles throughout. And Miles, when, when it comes to like the big reveal right at the end, um, there are all of these little things that are filtered throughout the entire film that then you're suddenly like, oh yeah, it's obvious. <laughs> right. Well, and that's the thing. You're You're exactly right. Because we're not told Duke is mad about seeing Whiskey sleep with Miles we don't hear the conversation that he hears. So we make mm-hmm. that assumption. We're jumping to that conclusion. And and we're we're also jumping to conclusions based upon based upon character types. Right. Because these are all tropes, right? Mm-hmm. So oh the far right blogger, right? The far right um kind of video game nerd who yeah. is who's got this hot girlfriend. And then what we discover later on about whiskey is that whiskey is actually pretty smart. Mm-hmm. and pretty capable and she fully knows the game that is being played and she's kind of playing it in order to further her own um brand and to further her own thing right and and we we see that but what we see initially is oh she's just the dumb blonde on the arm of the big muscle guy right right um we and we see the same thing in um the the andy uh helen kind of dichotomy where there's all of these assumptions that we make. Oh, she's very distant. She's angry, right? She's mm-hmm. kind of she's kind of inscrutable. She's unreadable. There's all of these things. And what we find out is that she's getting progressively drunk. <laughs> she is seasick, right? Yeah. And she's not actually and and she's been listening to what different people are saying, but sometimes she's not even there listening when we think she is. Mm-hmm. And, and so this entire time, just like, oh, well, aren't you, you know, aren't you behaving in a weird way? It's just like, yes, because she's totally intoxicated. <laughs> but, but so we make all of, again, it's all of those assumptions. We make all of these assumptions based upon what we're seeing and hearing, but also based upon who we know these people to be because they fit into these, these generic tropes that we're, we recognize, we know, we know who these people are, but also it becomes pretty clear that we don't. Right. Yeah. And I think one of the very interesting choices is that puzzle box scene in the very beginning where we get to know these characters, but on such a surface level. Like we, because yeah. they're all solving this puzzle together on the phone and, you know, the way that, that Birdie and, um, oh my gosh, Catherine Hahn's character, um, the way that oh, they kind of- the, poli- the politician, um, Claire. Claire, yeah. The way that they kind of like, play off of each other and like tease each other a little bit and then you've got Lionel the scientist and um and then Duke with his mom and everything it's like just such interesting ways of introducing these characters and seeing how they all interact and and how close they are clearly even though they're so different from each other yeah um but then once they do all get together you start to see the cracks in that and it's not it it wasn't all as straightforward as we were initially um yeah introduced 
Well, and all of those opening scenes also also establish the the tropes, right? We've got the the career politician who is trying who's trying to take the next step in her career. We've got the MRA activist. We've got and his and his bimbo girlfriend. You know, we've got mm -hmm. the the scientist the scientist who initially is presented as being like, oh, he's trying to you know stop bad things from happening. He's really smart. He's really bright. You've got Birdie, who is like the kind of effervescent supermodel figure, um, and then. So we 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 get all of those tropes really clearly established by their surroundings, by the people that they interact with, and by the, as you say, by the way they interact with each other, and then that all breaks down further and further as the film goes on. And and it's it's more it's revealed who also who these people really are, and what kind of performance they're putting on pretty constantly for themselves, for each other, for everybody in in kind of pursuit of power, basically power and money yeah exactly um so let's talk about some of the specific characters because i think we have some really interesting interesting folks here um so we are in the very beginning we meet birdie j who is played by kate hudson um her assistant peg who's played by jessica henwick um and then we've got duke which is dave Batista, and whiskey which is madeline klein um, and then we have Claire, Catherine Hahn, and then um, Lionel is Leslie Odom Jr. And um, so you talked a little bit about Duke and Whiskey. Um, I <laughs> really want to talk about Kate Hudson as Bernie J. <laughs> <laughs> Kate Hudson, who I think, other than Daniel Craig, is having the most fun well, she's just the character that gets to. That's the yeah, thing. no, yeah, definitely. She she's just like, okay, we want. Here's what we want you to do. Absolutely, this is great. I'm I'm there. I am so ready for this. Like, it's just like Kate Hudson has finally come into the characters that she was born to play. Um, she's and she's obviously having a great time. Yeah, yeah, and she's just a, like, there's so many hilarious, like, really hilarious things about her. Like, so in that opening where she's. She it's fine. She's in her pods. She's got this crazy party happening. This is all set during COVID. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in fact, it very clearly says March 2020 uh, in the very beginning. And um, and so she's in her pod, but it's full of people. Yo-Yo Ma is hanging out at her house. <laughs> <laughs> like, all these artists and and actors and um, anyway, just that whole thing where she uh, you find out why she doesn't have her phone, why Peg took it away from her. It's because she's tweeting <laughs> racist stuff without knowing it's racist. <laughs> well, and I, I like that, you know, it's again, it's so tropey in terms of the relationship between this, you know, supermodel figure and uh, and her kind of smart, smart, clever, capable assistant, mm -hmm. right? Way too good um, for this job, assistant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, absolutely. But I, I, I like their their interplay, and I like a lot of the joking that goes on within that. Like when she busts out her secret phone <laughs> later on in the film, and she's just like, "What's that? That is my secret cell phone." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, please tell me you did not think sweatshops were where they made sweatpants. <laughs> I just about died at that line as soon as you as as soon as you find out it's like that she had sent this email. Um, yeah. and it's just like oh my gosh no she didn't <laughs> <laughs> well 
Well, and there there is that like I I think that Kate Hudson gives a really great performance as well because there's a little bit of an edge to it where how much of this is like this is actually who she is, right? Mm-hmm. This is or and how much of this is she's actually that stupid, right? Right. So does she really think that? sweatshops is where are, are where you make sweatpants or does she know what a sweatshop is and doesn't care right um and and i think that that kind of tension is there and a lot of it is is located in her um uh is is located in her character like even there there's a moment where i was like she's smarter than she looks because because like she shows up and uh miles is playing blackbird on paul's guitar right mm-hmm. uh and and he and then he like throws it on the ground and she just has this look of sh- of real shock on her face yeah where you're like she she's aware of certain things she's not just 100 percent stupid right he's well, very I'm- capable yeah, later when Helen is smashing all the glass and smashes the piano and she's like, I think that belongs to Liberace. <laughs> yeah, like Bertie. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Like Bertie does have some awareness, even though she's really dumb about other things. Well, it feels it feels a little bit like weaponized dumbness. Yeah. Where I oh I didn't mm-hmm. yeah I didn't know I didn't know that this word was offensive. You know, just like it's quite obviously offensive. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know that referred to Jewish people. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I love the way that Peg responds to her too, though. I think it's such great. It's um, such great interplay between Kate Hudson and Jessica Henwick because um, just watching her be this like constantly having to deal with stuff and um but also just knowing that she doesn't have anywhere else to go right now. Like this is her entire yeah. resume and, but she has this loyalty and um, yeah, I really like Peg. I think she's, I think she's fun. Um, I, I, I also, I really love several people pointed this out on, on social media, but I really love just the way that she looks at Janelle Monet, the entire film. Like every time she looks at Janelle Monet, you're just like, that's the way we all look at Janelle Monet. It's, it's true. <laughs> She's just like, you're amazing. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's really true. I also love the when they're still on the phone in the beginning and Bertie's like, oh, she's just putting out a fire. Oh, what'd you do now? Oh, nothing. And it's like, no, Peg's in the background putting out a literal fire. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so they're great. Um, let's see. I, I, I think I think obviously we need to talk about Miles Braun. <laughs> yes. Edward Norton, Miles Braun. Um, I obviously this is not only Elon Musk. I think it's pretty <laughs> clear that there are a lot of um billionaire tech people that this is kind of a composite of. However, it's pretty crazy the timing. <laughs> yeah and and also the the stupidity yeah that's right? what i and, mean like it's yeah. so this was this was written two years ago way before elon musk even made a joke about buying twitter and set a whole lot of weird shit in motion <laughs> i swear ryan johnson is clairvoyant 
Well, but I mean, this, this has been, you know, people, to people who've been paying attention and, and I think that, you know, a lot of us haven't. And, right. and then you look back on it, you're like, ah, we should have known. Um, yeah. It is, is this whole thing about the billionaire who's a billionaire because he's basically stolen other people's ideas. Um, and he's actually not that smart. Yeah. And, and so, so, so yeah, like stealing the idea of the company, stealing and being very good in a certain sense about entrapping people and creating a network where he has control over a lot of people, but not being a very smart person and not being as, and wanting to be seen as very smart, wanting to be seen as a genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and really one of the things that I like about Edward Norton's performance and also just about the way the entire film goes is that all of the other people surrounding him are also stupid. Yeah. Like, I, and in fact, they even reveal like how Andy um, has essentially brought all these people together and sort of shaped the the company and the way that they have interacted and has kind of, and has really been the architect of all of this. Um, and and then Miles steals it out from under her. But none of these people are good at what they do. Right. Uh, and they keep on kind of creating situations where they're they're essentially too big to fail. Almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my Miles in particular, where, you know, he's misusing words, he's using a lot of rhetoric that doesn't actually mean anything. His puzzles and his mysteries are simplistic. Uh, his technology doesn't work. Everything that he does doesn't work and everything that does work, he's stolen. Right. That's the thing. And well, and not only does his 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 mysteries and puzzles and things, not only are they are simplistic, but he also didn't even do those. He pays other people. He like his whole murder mystery weekend idea. Yeah. He paid Jillian Flynn to write it for him, you know, (laughs) and which is pretty hilarious. And the puzzle box. He has a puzzle box guy, you know, like he doesn't he doesn't do he gets all this credit from his friend group for which this is where it's like. I see people trying to say, oh, it's not Elon Musk. It's like, if you don't think this is Elon Musk, you are not paying attention to this movie and to yeah. Elon Musk. Um, because he it's does the sycophants. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's what he's surrounded with, which is why they don't really notice all these things. They don't notice that he's misusing words. They don't notice that he doesn't do any of this stuff himself and everything he does try to go out on his own on is is bad and wrong and messed up. And um and they just they miss all of it. Mm-hmm. I, I like it when Blanc begins kind of going into you know him realizing that Miles is just an idiot. Yeah. Um, or just like is that word abbreviate? That's not a word. <laughs> it sounds, it like, sounds it like it's a word, and it sounds like it means something, but it it doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like the the infraction point. You know the the what was it the. I forget which one he uses, the perennial detective or something like that. It's just like, that's not, that's the wrong word. <laughs> right. Yeah. None of those words are right. He doesn't even know where he is because he says the wrong C. <laughs> uh, Benoit's like, that is the Aegean C. And Claire's like, oh yeah, wait, I need that. <laughs> yeah. His, his dock doesn't work. His, you know, none. Thanks, doc. Yeah. His fuel is going to kill everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's turning every house into the Hindenburg. Um, yeah, and that's the thing. It's like it's, but but also I do think that it's pretty clear too that while this is because of recent events, this is very like the 
the direct tie to Elon Musk is so clear. But I think that this is true of a lot of tech billionaires who've gotten lucky because they hit at the right time, they had the right amount of investment capital, and they surrounded themselves with people who weren't necessarily deep thinkers who would just cheer them on and Mm -hmm. you know because i I see shades of mark zuckerberg in here too i see shades of jeff bezos in here um and yeah and 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 it that that whole element of needing to be perceived as smart Mm -hmm. it's so it's not even like you know the old kind of colbert idea where you're rich because you're rich and you just have power because you have power and that's it it's that need for adoration Right. The need for other people to see you as a genius. Right. Which you get when you're from not even. Yeah. Which you get from even little things like him name dropping Jared Leto's hard kombucha and Jeremy Renner's hot sauce and all these things. And it's like mm-hmm. these guys that are like celebrities, but they're not even that impressive of celebrities. But even <laughs> that he has to like name drop that like this is how connected he is. And when duke is making the comment about like yeah remember when you almost hit me and he's about to say outside of andy's house and he jumps in oh yeah anderson cooper's birthday party like because he's connected enough that he would be at something like that you know it's like he Mm -hmm. just has to name drop everybody he can think of and then i think so i (laughs) i tweeted about this the other day and it's weird that the tweet went viral and i'm still getting weird like stuff on it but um (laughs) it was specifically it was in reference to um this one particular flashback where it shows the friends at their glass onion bar that they all met at and hung out at and it's like when he comes in and he's dressed in this very specific outfit and as soon as i saw it i went holy shit that's frank tj mackey from magnolia i knew it immediately um but there was still that like is it a coincidence and anyway i got the chance to ask ryan johnson about it and it was not a coincidence it was very intentional um and it was not even a ryan johnson idea it was something edward norton came up with with the costume designer jenny egan and they were like oh this will be funny and they he just showed up on set and ryan johnson saw it like he had no idea this was going to happen but the thing is like that right there is another thing that as much as it's like a funny reference it's also really smart character development because uh if you (laughs) know the movie magnolia if you know what that character is basically he's taking he's he totally miles seems like the kind of guy who would take on this look of a character that he admires without really understanding why he admires that person or why it's wrong (laughs) you know and that's what it is so like frank tj mackey in the movie magnolia is the character played by tom cruise and he is this guy who's built an entire empire out of basically teaching men how to conquer women and make them think that they want it. And it's it's an extremely misogynistic um, character. It's an extremely, like, actually even beyond that, it's like an abusive character. And um, and the fact that this is is something that you can watch this and think, okay, so Miles went and saw Magnolia and was like, I want to be that guy you know it's just like it's such a if you understand the reference it's such a like wow that's such an interesting persona that he would want to adopt you know 
<laughs> well, and and you're right. It is it is also like not understanding the point of the of that character that the character is not to be admired, right? right it's exactly. not. This is not a character that you want to emulate. <laughs> Um, but that that particular kind of guy who isn't smart, right, and thinks that this is the kind of character. Well, of course you will, of course you want to be like him, right? Um, and yeah, and I do have to say, Edward Norton g- gives a great performance in this, and I am sometimes really very does. annoyed by Edward Norton. I think this and, is the best role he's done in years. I and really do. well, and maybe it just comes down to exploiting his inherent punchability, but. One of the things that I really liked actually about the about his performance is that particularly nearing the end of the film, where you know, we've just detailed like not only is this guy stupid, not only has he like murdered and attempted to murder these people, um, and not only has he done it in some of the dumbest ways possible, but he's actually gonna get away with it. And and there is this like smugness to him throughout the entire film but particularly nearing the end of the uh, nearing the end when things begin to finally totally fragment that you just like oh just some just some do something someone hit him like do anything to like knock this guy down a peg to make him upset and when he finally is when he finally gets angry and like loses it and begins panicking it is so fucking satisfying (laughs) yeah it's great it's so great Oh man, he's he's it really is a good a good performance of a despicable guy. And that's yeah. that's the thing about this movie is like you have to it's fun to to dislike some of these characters, but you still have to have a compelling reason to keep watching watching them. And that's where this this cast and this blend of people is so smart and such a it's such a great cast it really is because Mm -hmm. even when they're just despicable you just can't you can't look away and you don't want to look away i want to talk really briefly about the mona lisa yes we have to um because i i thought like you know in watching this just like and i think that it it feeds into this this discussion about about miles that miles is basic Mm -hmm. right so of all of the paintings in the world that you can be inspired by. And it's not saying that the Mona Lisa is not a great painting, but it's the most basic painting. It's so famous. It's so cliched, yeah. right? Of, of like, oh, it's, 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 the, it's the Mona Lisa. And like, you know, I've got it on loan from the, the Louvre. And it's just, and all of, the, all of these things, it's that like performance of power and of, of depth that has no real depth. Because saying the Mona Lisa is a great work of art, that's the most basic statement you can make. Um, even the, the way that he talks about the Mona Lisa is, is at the same time, just like, yeah, that's, that's simplistic. It's basic yeah um but then you know also going into that whole idea of like this this the thing that is hiding behind it that you know if you actually strip away some of it um and and begin to look at what is you know what is behind the smile right what is behind all of this and that someone like miles is never going to be able to discern that because he he can't think beyond um the most basic element which is that my work is in the same space with the mona lisa Mm-hmm. yeah and then, and then they burn it <laughs> <laughs> yeah which it's so funny because it's like i know this isn't real and yet this hurts my heart so much <laughs> because it is the most famous painting in the world but then there was also this element of like 
but why is it so famous? First of all, we don't even know if France really has the real one. We definitely don't know if they put it on display. You know, there's all that, there's all that like allure and mystery about it. But then it's like, I got to thinking about the scene from Juilliard in the movie Tar, where this, that young student is kind of going back and forth with Lydia Mm -hmm. about why he doesn't want to study Bach and these other, you know, these racist old dudes (laughs) from the 1800s, you know, and um, I don't know, there was just something about like, well, who decided that this is like the most valuable painting in the world Mm -hmm. and you know it just I don't know I just started thinking about that and and obviously it is have it does have that big impact because that's been his whole goal is I want to be remembered in the same breath as the Mona Lisa and then he gets his wish not in the reason (laughs) not in the way that he wants but just the way that aunt or Helen is able to make this happen and and burn the Mona Lisa yeah, I um, but I I think that the Mona Lisa then becomes like, like I said it's it's the adoration of it at some level yeah. it far out exceeds what With it actually it. is yeah. mm-hmm. right and and I think that that's part of the point but it's also the whole thing that it is far more valuable to bring this man down and to stop him is yeah. more valuable to the future of the world <laughs> and to humanity right than preserving this this old this old piece this old painting right right and and i i think that that's the trade-off that you have to that and i don't think that johnson is trying to say like oh we have to destroy art or anything like that no no, no, no. this this thing that has become so symbolic not really of art anymore but of power Mm -hmm. and of money and of, of value beyond the actual object right to say like we're going to destroy that essentially for the greater good you know because because if that doesn't happen, then he's never going to be brought down. Then this fuel is going to wind up at all of these different homes and thousands of people are going to die. Um, you know, there's oh, all millions. kinds of, there's all kind of like a, like a ripple effect that is going to stem from this. And she has, in that moment, Helen has an opportunity to destroy a whole bunch of things in in pursuit of actually being like, we're going to, you know it's things human beings are more important than things right and and i do think that that's one of the central tenets of of both um uh knives out and of glass onion and definitely one of the things that blanc himself kind of espouses which is that it's way more important to preserve life and honesty and kindness than it is to preserve wealth and things um and and that's that's ultimately the choice that helen makes and i really really like at the end blanc is the one who says to her you know i've gone as far as i can go um i've gone i i can only work within the system but he essentially says but you have you can do more basically Mm -hmm. and she does she makes that choice yeah yeah and well and just to that point I, i i've seen other people point this out too but it's something that i think is really um really interesting when you watch knives out and glass onion is that it's not to me these aren't eat the rich movies in the same sense of like triangle of sadness or or some other films but they definitely have an element of of putting the wealthy in their place and showing that that being super rich isn't 
you know, isn't what makes a person valuable. And, um, yeah. and I, I just, I think that it's, it's such a, I think this is something that, that Ryan Johnson does very well, where he censors these stories around a nurse and a teacher. And, yeah. and both, both and women, of, women color. of color. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. exactly. And, and he's showing like, these are the people that are, that are really running the world. These are the women that are keeping our society um, not pure, but uh, worth saving, really. And um, and I just I think that that's such a such a I think ultimately what it comes down to in these movies is like that is why these are so good is because it's not just about like bringing down the rich. It's showing who really who really is the most valuable yeah who who ma- who truly matters um and and I, that's one of the things that i really liked in nearing the end when i like blanc's entire ethos right and he's yeah. he's a fantastic character like i he's i'm great. so glad that daniel craig is fine i feel like daniel craig is finally getting to play the character that he really has always wanted to play yeah <laughs> um um but but that but his whole ethos is really underneath you know all this and he's he thinks he's brilliant right he thinks he's he's the world's greatest detective all of that stuff but at the same time the ethos underneath it is you are you're a better person than this right don't let them the rich people the people who say the only purpose to life is money and power tell you that that is your only value right um and and we're going, and even, you know, and especially in this case, that there's only so far that the system can go. The system can't punish Miles um, because of the entire structure that has been built up around him. But Helen has the opportunity to. Mm-hmm. And that's what's really important. So yeah, there, there's there's an entire ethos around it that I think Blanc represents and that really is at the heart of these films, which which is like you say, these are the true people of value in our society. Yeah. Um, uh, these are the people that are going to, you know, that we need that we need to value. And it has nothing to do with how much money they make or how much money they have or don't have. Nothing like that. It's it, what matters is the people that they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and it's it's it takes Helen destroying everything, like destroying the glass onion, destroying everything in it, destroying the Mona Lisa and really making it clear that Miles Braun is finished for the friends to finally come around and do the right thing. Cause there's that moment where when she finds this napkin that, that mm-hmm. proves that her sister really was the one who, who had the idea for the company before Miles, you know, forced her out and no one will lie. They all lied. They all perjured themselves in court to screw over her sister but none of them are willing to tell a lie in honor of the truth or to, to bring the truth about. Um, But until it's clear that miles will lose everything has been destroyed and cannot do anything more to them, then suddenly they're willing to come forward. And so it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, good. They're going to, they're going to back up Helen. They're going to back up the right side, but it's only because they literally have nothing else to lose. Yeah, they they none of them are redeemed at the end, no. which I I actually quite liked. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's very similar to the 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 first Knives Out. No one right. is redeemed at the end. It's it's Blanc and the girl, right? It's Blanc and Helen. It's Blanc, and I'm trying to remember the the name of the first Marta. Marta. 
mm-hmm. um, that both of that at that at the end, it's like all of this power, all of this wealth, everything. None of these people are worth anything. <laughs> right. Because this is all that they care about. Right. This this is they they are completely devoid of morality, all of that stuff. Um, and and they, and yeah, like you say, they're do, they're willing to do the right thing now. But it's not because they're good people. It's not because they've, they've had a change of heart. It's because they no longer see the way forward to, 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 um, succeeding with this man, basically. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So just a couple of really quick things. There's one line that I really love, and that is when Blanc is talking to Bertie J and she's like, Oh, I'm a truth teller. Some people can't handle it. And he says, it's a dangerous thing to mistake speaking without thought for speaking the truth. And mm-hmm. I just love that line so much because we hear that all the time. That was one of the big selling points for a lot of people in the 2016 election was, yeah. oh, well, I just like Trump because he says it like it is. And it's like, does he or is he just talking a lot? <laughs> you know, like he's not saying anything <laughs> yeah. that's true. He's just saying a lot of things and you just like what he's saying. It doesn't mean anything he's saying is correct. And but it's, I also go on. Sorry. Oh, I was just say we also see that today with Elon Musk. We see that with Mark Zuckerberg. We see that with all kinds of politicians and business people and stuff like just all kinds of people that just say things, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're saying that they're saying something that's true or right. I and mean, we see this on Twitter all the time, just yeah. with average everyday people. Or, or that it's it's intelligent, right? That's that's the other thing that you, they're saying things, but are they actually saying anything? It's like the the entire speech that that Miles gives about disruption and oh, here's yeah. what disruptors are. If you really listen to it, and Blanc points it out later, uh, that doesn't make any sense. Like yeah. none of it, none of it, it works basically. And and that's that's the other thing that I really liked, particularly about this film, is that there is a value placed on intellect and understanding and kindness and knowledge that is very important like and he he you know blog at this is miles is an idiot <laughs> you know that right. that just and that statement of like this is stupid and just like it's so dumb it's brilliant no it's just dumb <laughs> and and there is so much value, I think, in that the, that the that this film in particular really does say that intellect, even though you might not be rich, God, at least you're not stupid. You know, that there is that sensation that intellect and ability and knowledge and all those things are actually valuable things. It goes back to the, the teacher. Um, these are valuable things. This is what's important. Mm-hmm. What's not important is these dumb rich people. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, any other thoughts? Anything else you wanted to to mention? Uh, I, I would like some some of the cameos are just fantastic. Yes. I loved the fact that we had both Angela Lansbury and Stephen Sondheim uh, cameos. Angela Lansbury passed away like just a couple of days before I saw this at Middleburg. <laughs> so seeing her on the screen was just like, oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> um serena williams i liked like seeing her there and and my favorite because it's actually a functional character he's actually a functional character is philip played by (laughs) hugh grant when we learn we we always i think we all kind of knew that blanc was gay but it's so nice to actually be like he's not only got a lovely a lovely partner husband you know it's not it's not 100 clear who's also making bread at the time he's holding a sourdough starter (laughs) 
And it's just like, that's what you did in March of 2020. Absolutely. And, and it's just like, look, someone's here with a box. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I really enjoy again. (laughs) No. Yeah. Um, let me see who else. Um, Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke, yeah. <laughs> the guy who's just like going around and apparently inoculating people because that's what rich people got. Um I yeah. I do kind of want to be like, is that I think that that's bullshit. <laughs> like I think that that's just like some random thing that uh, Miles like made up that he's oh, like, yeah. oh, this is an inoculation. Just like, no, it's not. <laughs> like if there were gonna be a a end credit like little fun scene it should be birdie totally having covid (laughs) yeah (laughs) um there's also uh joseph gordon levitt did you catch his cameo he he does the clock sound the the hourly dong (laughs) (laughs) which was in the script as hourly gong but in one of the takes edward norton actually accidentally said hourly dong and he's like, oh, no, I screwed that up. And Ryan's like, nope, it's now the hourly dong. You're keeping it. And he's just like, no, no, no. He's like, nope, we're keeping it. <laughs> and, and I also really liked Daryl. Yeah. Uh, who, who has no narrative function. Um, you kept on like waiting for there to be like some reveal about Daryl. It's just like, nope, he's just there. Yeah. Well, it's uh, Noah Sagan. And he yeah. and Joseph Gordon-Levitt have been in every Ryan Johnson movie somewhere. So they just continue that trend. Yeah, yeah, he he was in he played one of the the like police officers in Knives yeah. Out, I believe, right? Yeah, so, he was Cooper Wagner. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's I one I really like about this one that it is it is very clever. There are all of these like cute references, jokes, you know, all of those things, and then at the at the center of it is this this very real and honest and and good story about. That's also very satisfying. Like watching a rich guy's home go up in flames is very satisfying right now. Especially when it's because of his own doing. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, it's not it, just, it didn't just burn down. Like he blew it up <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 hubris. it's it's a lot of fun and it does like, and I, I, I do think, like I said earlier, I do think that it has a lot of, um, relationship to some of the things that Agatha Christie did in her story, some of the things that Dorothy L. Sayers did, uh, more so maybe than we even realize. Um, so that that there is the sensation of like, it's taking all of these tropes, all of these ideas and everything and kind of mixing them together and, you know, playing with them, but also celebrating them and having fun with them and updating them and bringing them forward into the 21st century and being like, you know, we can use these tropes and do something really interesting with them. Yeah. It's good stuff, man. This is a good movie. It's and it stuff. seriously does reward rewatching. So definitely if you've watched it already and you liked it, watch it again. If you watched it and you didn't like it that much, watch it again. You might change your mind. Because <laughs> when I when I watched it the first time, I was like, you know what, I enjoy this, but I definitely don't like it as much as Knives Out and I watched it again and I was just like no I can't compare the two and it's not a like one or the other better it's like they're very different movies um very different like they they do a lot of very similar things like we've talked about but um but the the 
feel of it, the the look of it, the you know the setting, everything about this is so different. And um, like that's why I said at the beginning, like I don't consider this a sequel to Knives Out. It's just another movie in the universe, you know. And it's just, mm-hmm. um, it's just so fun. I I think they're both um, they're both great great movies. Definitely. And and I do have to say, I, I think that we need to stop comparing Benoit Blanc to Sherlock Holmes and more to Hercule Poirot. Yeah. Uh, because he's they're they're actually very, very similar. Everybody's like, oh, this is like skewering the whole, you know, emotionless detective. Just like, first of all, Holmes is emotion does have emotions and is emotional if you if you actually read the books. Um, but Poirot in particular, a lot of what Poirot does is about not necessarily it's serving justice not necessarily serving the law mm-hmm. and trying to and and understanding other people's psychologies and understanding and being kind to people as well like understanding kindness and what that means and the fact that human beings don't behave necessarily in a 100% logical way they also behave in an emotional way and that those are the things that combine to result in murder to result in crime etc yeah yeah definitely i think that's a good place to end unless you have any other final thoughts no i i do recommend this i do want to watch it again um and yeah it's it's a lot of fun (laughs) yeah it definitely is so all right well thank you so much for listening to our special bonus episode we'll be back in the new year with uh some really fun things coming your way um and you can find us on the socials in all the usual places you know where to go nothing ever changes (laughs) (laughs) except for everything changes anyway um but yeah so thanks so much for for great 2022 and we look forward to to more fun in the new year can you spot the other thing the real thing this group has in common. Andy, come on. Oh, Lionel. Everybody knows who Lionel works for. That's no secret. And we know who bankrolled Claire's campaign. But when nobody, nobody would touch Bertie with a 10-foot pole because she went on Oprah and compared herself to Harriet Tubman. And spirit. Who do you think showed up as an angel investor in Sweetie Pants? Huh? And Duke, when Duke got banned from Twitch for hawking rhino horn boner pills to teenage boys. With zero rhino on those pills. Who do you think set them up at YouTube and used their media empire to promote the stream? That is the common thread here. Every single one of you is holding on for dear life to Miles Bryan's golden titties. And each of you, you'll stab a friend in the back to hold on. 